Jorge Luis Borges famously wrote the story of the cartographers of an empire that produced a map so exact that it was on a scale of the empire itself and hence effectively useless. So much so that it was left to rot in the deserts where only fragments could be found and that these were the last traces of the discipline of geography from that place. Today, maps as we use them are rarely even produced on paper anymore. The digital screen is refreshed in real time and localised with layer upon layer of information often supplied by the user themselves. In this way, the mapping technology we now enter, so to speak, is a new territory that bears no resemblance to what was called territory before and is something to, closer to what could be defined as navigational platforms. By connecting the maps to the notion of empire, Borges is drawing attention to the fact that such projections have, within modernity, been connected to colonisation and economics, what has been described as violent cartographies. Yet there is always a multiplicity of cartographies in the world, each predicated on a particular political imaginary, each carrying the potential to disrupt and displace stable worlds and creating the possibilities for new encounters. New media produces new cartographies, and within the field of geomedia studies, the aim is to capture and make sense of these emergent geographies driven by widespread digitalization. Geomedia studies has been described as itself a space of encounter, an interdisciplinary terrain where the fundamental role of media in organizing and giving meaning to processes and activities in space can be critically engaged. Hello and welcome. I am John Lynch, Associate Professor in Film and Media Studies and member of the Geomedia Research Group at the Department of Geography, Media and Communication here at Karlstad University in Sweden. My guest today is Gillian Rose, Professor of Human Geography in the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford and the 2018 Ander Visiting Professor in Geomedia Studies. I talked with Gillian about the development of her work from her first book, Feminism and Geography, through to work on visual methodologies, photography and the domestic space, and up to her most recent research on digital visualization technologies and their mediation of urban spaces. So, uh, welcome Gillian. Um, I want to start with uh, just thinking about really the role of geography today. Uh, I think it was um, Michael Paling actually, who amongst other things is apparently president of the Royal Geographical Society a few years ago, he said, geography students hold the key to the world's problems. And uh, in that sense, then, how important is geography as a, as a discipline today, given the challenges we face locally, nationally, globally? Well, for me, geography, I think, really, is the fundamental academic discipline for, for contemporary times. Uh, I, I think uh, it has a very wide remit which in the past I think has been a bit of a problem. It can be seen as a bit of a kind of descriptive, jack-of-all-trades kind of discipline. But I think increasingly, you know, as the world's facing some incredibly complex, recalcitrant, you know, w wicked problems, as they're often described. And we can think about environmental change, um, you know, climate change, obviously, habitat destruction. Uh, we can think about the ways in which digital technologies in all sorts of ways are radically changing our sense of, of kind of near and far and who we connect with and how. 
um, and also the ways in which um, sort of debate and discussion about these sorts of things is also now uh, you know kind of intensely local. It can be global through social media. And I think geography uh, as a discipline is absolutely at the centre of all these things because because places, spaces, landscape, nature, they mm. are also all at the heart of these of these massive problems that that, that we're facing. Uh, and I think geographers often are quite interdisciplinary. Uh, we, we draw on appropriate knowledges from different uh, different academic disciplines. We use a wide range of methods to explore these issues. Um, so uh, for me, it's a really fantastic place to, to, to be able to, to look out to the world and, and really make, a, um, make significant uh, academic knowledge that, that makes a difference. Sure. So it's, it's quite a, an expansive um, uh, sort of subject in that sense, then it uh, covers quite a lot of things. Yeah. Your profile states that you're um, centrally concerned with the politics of knowledge production. Um, how does this inform your work as a, as a geographer? What's the essence of that idea of uh, critiquing the very nature of, of what we know rather than just information? Um, is there something more there? Yeah, I mean, the, the politics of knowledge production is quite an abstract kind of phrase, I guess. Um, but what I was trying to get at by, by, by that was the idea that knowledge uh, doesn't just kind of exist. It doesn't fall from the sky in some you know, kind of natural form. Uh, it's always made. It's made by particular people, you know, in particular situations, in particular places often either consciously and unconsciously with quite particular interests in, in, in presenting, creating a particular kind of world view, um, often with an interest too in persuading others of, of, the, of the truth, the veracity of, of that, of that world view. Um, and so for me, uh, politics knowledge production is all about asking questions about who, who's creating what kinds of knowledge about the world and, and with what effects. Um, and I think that's really important uh, nowadays. Uh, I mean, a very recent example has been the whole discussion about fake news. Uh, you know, and what kind of um, evidence do we have about things that we don't have any direct experience of, but we gather, you know, perhaps through you know, social media or, or other forms of, of, uh, of information sharing. Um, but I think, you know, historically, we can look at the ways in which well, geography and anthropology, for example, as academic disciplines, were were really um, intimately bound up with uh, the projects of colonialism and empire, and that, and that many of those um, historical legacies of who was seen or understood to be capable of creating robust, authoritative ac uh, academic geographical knowledge um, were, were a very particular group of people. I mean, you know, white European men, basically. <laughs> um, and many other groups are, are still struggling to hear, get, get their voices heard within uh, within the, the, the contemporary North American, European uh, you know, um, uh, university and uh, academy. Um, so I think that question of the politics of knowledge production is a, is a really, you know, it's a crucial one, it's a profound one, and it plays out in all sorts of different ways, both both historically and in, in contemporary forms of, of knowledge production. So in the, in the context in which you've uh, emerged into the discipline, mm -hmm. um, the, the 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 British context in that sense that 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 history of of uh, you know the um, I come from a, a more an Irish background and the of course the the the, the mapping of landscape is the first wave of the kind of militarized occupation and things in the colonial sense I mean so you think those kind of things need to be unpacked in a kind of British context really. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think Ireland is a really interesting example to raise because I mean, you know, there's much more discussion and debate now around uh, geography's implications with colonial projects, but but a lot of that focuses on the kind of global empire, um, so, you know, Africa, India, so on. Um, but of course, you know, empire happened much closer to home as well. Colonialism, Ireland, absolutely. Also, uh, Scotland. I taught taught in Edinburgh for for many years, um, and and the Ordnance Survey, you know, also. Mm-hmm. I won't say invaded, that's perhaps a little strong, but but the mappers, the cartographers certainly went along with the army and uh, mapped Scotland, erasing uh, um, Gaelic place names, replacing with English names and so on. Um, Similar processes happened in Ireland. um, And that's a colonial legacy much closer to home that we tend not to pay so much attention to. Um, uh, There may be similar issues in Sweden, perhaps with uh, populations in the north of the country and um, that's not my place to uh, <laughs> to question that but uh, but yeah I, I, um, and it's a complicated question in terms of kind of contemporary legacies as well around uh, you know what you know what kind of books appear on our reading list that we set our undergraduates you know, uh, you know where where do we draw knowledges from about what kinds of places um, I'll stop there. Maybe there's another follow-up question I could go on at great length. Do you want to talk about de- decolonising or uh, decolonising the curriculum? I could do, if you'd like. So in that sense, then, um, the notion of of mapping as the production of knowledge and, and Foucault's idea that there's an intrinsic relationship then between the knowledge and power, that's the kind of work that informs that idea? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think mapping is a really good example, actually, um, because it's a, it's a very powerful, very taken for granted way of, ma- of making sense of geographies, of spaces and places. Uh, and we tend to see maps as objective truths. And I think that was one of the really important points that Foucault made, that, that the, really, the way in which power and knowledge are really intertwined is, is, is through claims of, of, of knowing the real or the true. Um, uh, and, and that's kind of fed into an interest of mine um, in, in terms of thinking about, about the sort of particular ways in which I've addressed this problem, uh, of looking not at very sort of spectacular or, or perhaps unusual forms of knowledge production, but at the very banal and kind of everyday ways in which we make sense of spaces and places and landscapes. Um, so, uh, you know, there are those long histories of, of map making, but then also, you know, right now there's the way in which we use Google Maps so often to, you know, make sense of places, navigate around places, particularly if it's somewhere new, uh, perhaps without giving enough thought to the ways in which Google Maps represents places in very specific ways, the kind of things that it shows you depends on your previous searches on Google and so on. Uh, it's actually offering a very uh, selective vision of the place that you're navigating with your phone screen, um, whereas we tend to see it because it's a map as, as being just a kind of taken for granted, you know, that is the way the place is. Yeah, as a projection of something rather than a mm. construction. In a, yeah. At the same time, I suppose maps, the, 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 the power of, of that process is they work. <laughs> you know, they, they enable a lot, don't they? I mean, to, to be lost in the city or the landscape without that is, is, is different. So it's a, quite a, it's a compelling process as well, I think, isn't it? It's, uh, it's uh, persuasive in that sense. Well, I think that's one of the things that we could learn from from feminist geography it, is thinking around the embodied experiences of knowledges, which which are often quite, I think, often more complicated than uh, an account that just looks at the map as a sort of text that gets you know that we can decode using, I don't know, semiotics or discourse analysis. I think mm-hmm. you're right, and if you start to think about how maps actually get used. Um, 
you know, by bodies in particular places, then there are all sorts of much more complications come into play. So, for example, you can't access Google Maps everywhere. For sure, you know, it hasn't mapped everywhere. The Wi-Fi signal or the, the phone signal drops. Um, if you're using a, a printed map, maybe you'll scribble something on or you'll draw yourself an arrow or you'll find that it's not actually, you know, something new has been built and the map of, that you've got in your hand hasn't been caught up. So I think in, in terms of, of thinking how these things actually play out, they are always much more complicated than, than um, uh, you know, some more of the sort of uh, dystopic or paranoid <laughs> critical accounts suggest. And of course, that was one of the things that Foucault argued as well, that where there's power, there's also always resistance, you know, whether that's explicit resistance or just kind of failures, frictions, things that don't quite work out in the way that, that those evidentiary powerful truth claims m might, might lead you to assume. So your first book was Feminism and Geography, The Limits of Geographical Knowledge. In that sense, then following from that, do you have a sense that we we navigate we literally navigate space even the same space differently depending on you know these intersecting kind of uh, experiences is, and is that the kind of thing that informed what you were doing in that first book um, well, I, I agree that different people experience places differently, um, but the book had uh, a bit of a different. Uh, starting point. Um, so it was written in the very early 1990s, uh, at, the, at a moment when the cultural term was, was taking off and people were very interested in this question of how language carries uh, particular forms of knowledge. Um, so the, you know, the particular kinds of ways in which things were written about were, were being given a lot of attention. Um, Post-structuralist theory was was kind of you know, becoming very popular as a way of approaching that. So what that book did was was try to think about geography, in part as a kind of embodied practice, but more as a kind of as an institution, a set of key texts, key theoretical assumptions about how we should theorise the world. Um, and it tried to think about that, those, those forms of knowledge, those perhaps more abstract interpretive forms of knowledge, uh, and unpack the ways in which there were quite deeply embedded assumptions about gendered and racialised class differences uh, within, within those forms of knowledge. So if you were to write it today, would it be different in that sense? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> starting, you know, starting your career at, in, in today's environment with the same motivation as such? Um, that, that's a really interesting <laughs> question. Um, I mean, I, well, you, you can't put your foot in the same river twice, as they say. So, so no, I mean, it couldn't possibly be the same book. I think, um, I think a few years ago, it, I, I would have said one of the reasons it couldn't be the same is that at that point, geography, when I was writing in, in the, did my PhD in, in the 80s, uh, writing that book in the early 90s, geography was, was very male dominated. It was much more so than, than now. Um, I mean, so there were just very few women in the discipline, particularly at the more, more senior levels. Um, and I think that without doubt had a certain effect on you know, the kinds of ways in which you know, particularly early career women were just kind of positioned and uh, and reading it again a little while ago, it felt very um, felt very angry. Actually, a lot of kind of um, emotion was was sort of implicit in the way that it, that it was being written. Um, I think now, right now, interestingly, with the emergence of Me Too and a really um, different sort of popular feminism re-emerging again, I think partly at least enabled by by social media. I think there's a similar sort of anger, um, actually. Not, I mean, that's perhaps putting it a little strong, but a, but a similar sense that um, 
you know, some of the ways in which women are treated are really not acceptable um, and, and perhaps a greater confidence in speaking out about that. I mean, Me Too hasn't quite hit the academy in perhaps the ways that it should, I think. Um, so there's a kind of resurgence of some of the initial impetus for that book now. Um, I think in terms of approaching the discipline, though, as, as a discourse, even in that strong Foucauldian sense of a discourse that's also practised and with technologies and bodies and so on, I... I will probably feel less confident to approach it now in that kind of way. Um, I think the, the, the discipline is more diverse now. I think there are more critical voices emerging. Um, you know, clearly feminism geography was just one element of a much wider emergence of feminist geography. Um, I think, you know, black and queer geographies are now much more um, in evidence. So I think it would be hard to make quite such a strong argument now in terms of, of, of kind of um, sort of stereotyping exclusion and so on that that, that book made um, what is it you know, 25 years ago now thank goodness things have changed <laughs> <coughs> yeah and as you say I think that that period in the late 80s early 90s the British context was a particular kind of there was a lot of shift uh, shifts in uh, in the academy mm. I think as uh, um, things were changing so we've mentioned this idea of mapping and in, and in one sense there's a perhaps the, the the output of that is, is something visual um, I don't know if you can have a map that's not visual if there are other ways of mapping but perhaps with sound I suppose as well but um, it, what was it then that motivated your focus to the visual as something very central to the to the discipline then at, um, in the late 90s well I've always been interested in visual things. <laughs> um, so one of the side projects from my, my PhD actually was looking at the ways in which this particular group of local politicians I was interested in, um, this was in the 1920s in East London, actually started to use the mass media um, and, and make films of, of their um, protests and demonstrations and so on. Um, so I've had a long-standing interest in things visual. But I think what really pushed me in that direction uh, or a particular take in that direction was when I was writing Feminism and Geography I really wanted a chapter on landscape. Um, so landscape also of course highly visual um, very strong traditions of, of European landscape painting. There was some very um, good um, you know, very critical cultural geography coming out written by people like Dennis Cosgrove and Steve Daniels. Um, at the same time, I was writing Feminism and Geography, looking at how landscape painting and the emergence of landscape painting was completely bound up with other kinds of visual technologies like map making, also surveying, and how they were part of the emergent um, capitalist property relations in Renaissance Italy and so on. So it's a very exciting sort of literature to be engaged with. They didn't really think about gender um, in, in, the, in that critical work. So that's, that's what I um, really pushed in, in feminism and geography, thinking about how that, that sort of powerful, possessive gaze at a landscape had historically been constituted as a gaze that was only available to, to the kind of white male landowning body, um, and others were not... Um, you know, that it wasn't a gaze that was easily achievable by, by others in different in different subject positions. Um, so I guess that was the first sort of statement I wanted to make. But then, of course, things rapidly got rather more complicated. Um, so other feminist geographers are pointing out that, of course, many women had tried to appropriate the view of the landscape in, in different kinds of ways. Um, so you know, traditions of, of feminist artists and so on, as well as those landscape artists that geographers were, uh, were looking at. Um, and I think also one of the things I really learned um, 
from working in in a department with environmental scientists and physical geographers as well as human geographers was a very early presentation of that work where I was suggesting that the, this kind of gaze, this possessive gaze at the landscape translated into a kind of very um, a form of field work and, and kind of analysis of the physical environment that was all about kind of uh, exploiting nature and taking information from nature and you know, um, a, a kind of critique I'd drawn on from from certain kinds of eco-feminism um, and I was then met with this by this bunch of glaciologists who went to Antarctica to do their research and they were saying the one thing you learn when you go into remote environments like that is to be incredibly respectful of the power of the natural of the environment which, which could turn around and you know kill you if, you if you haven't got the right so then I started to think about the kind of ambivalences actually that maybe it was a much more complex story than just you know the male gaze dominating the feminized landscape um, and that not only did the feminine gaze also exist uh, but that also that maybe the male gaze was a little more mixed ambivalent you know perhaps could be quite cautious and respectful uh, in certain circumstances as well um, so I've always preferred rather more um, I guess kind of messy accounts of how power works than, than very much you know it's all top down and terrible and so the bottom has to resist you know I, I think it's always much more messy and complicated than that. Yeah that seems to suggest it's uh, you know one of the things that we need to do is to try and communicate something of the dynamic kind of nature of things um, that uh, in interactions and mm. and different processes I think it's in the book uh, visuality materiality which was an edited book you did you talk about ecologies of the visual how, how useful was that as a as a, a concept this ecology of the visual um, because it's something that's become Something I, I I use this phrase. I like that this kind of idea of. Uh, um. That's great because I can't remember writing it. <laughs> As I'm glad it has a. The author is dead, right? <laughs> um, it's a great phrase. Uh, perhaps I should go back to it. Yeah, I, because I was thinking. Uh, you know, I was talking about knowledge is being complicated. I mean, I, I think one of the ways that they are is that I I think one one of the, the my approaches to thinking about the visual is that. Um, visual objects things that we see are always embedded in 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 social practices in in people doing things trying to you know, trying to do things achieve things um uh so we have visual things and, and we look at them in particular ways in particular contexts um and and so on you know through different kinds of technologies um and that idea of ecology i think is is quite a, a resonant one i guess because you could, because what it points to is the way that um any situation in which visual images are being used uh, is a kind of combination of all sorts of different things. So different people, different places in which different ways of seeing are expected um, uh, or disciplined, um, different kinds of, of devices that, that produce different versions of images, perhaps um, different kinds of audiencing. Um, so perhaps now a, a term I might use uh, is, is assemblage, but I think it's trying to get to the same idea. That, yeah. um, and within that, that complexity, then actually all sorts of things might start to happen with, a, with an image that that, that perhaps the makers hadn't hadn't anticipated, um, and certainly I think if we're now starting to think through the implications of digital technologies for both making and sharing images, uh, I think that sense in which different things happen with apparently the same image in different ways, you know, um, in different places, it, it is really crucial because images are travelling and circulating now in ways that they never have before historically. I think, um, and and so that sense that that, that place matters, that that particular circumstances of viewing make a difference um, I think is, is really crucial to hold on to. I remember uh, I think it was Martin Jay uh, in, uh, he talks about the disenchantment of the eye 
um, the, I think his book, The Denigration of Vision in 20th Century French Thought. And I seem to remember he locates this with the catastrophe, catastrophe of the First World War, that the all of the processes of, um, I think probably something that also Virilio might talk about, the militarisation of things and the, the changing nature of that conflict produced a very different... Uh, uh, specular regime shall we say do you think in that sense then so i think i think you know jay did an exemplary you know, well recognized analysis of that process through through 20 20th century french philosophy do you think it, but do you think today perhaps things have swung back swung back to a place where you know the technologies of vision have, have, have reassumed the kind of dominant kind of position in thinking and how we see the world well, I think there's probably um, a distinction to be drawn between what 20th century French philosophers thought about the visual <laughs> and what was actually going on. <laughs> um, so one of my uh, projects was uh, an investigation of family photography. Um, and one of the reasons I was interested in that was because, you know, if you're thinking about visual production in general, you know, family photography surely must be one of the most popular, you know, undertaken by every family who could. Uh, and even you know when when photography was a relatively new um, technology, you know, um, in ver even very poor areas, there'd be travelling photographers who who would offer to you know t t take a photograph of you and your family standing outside your front door, and you'd pay your money and get your uh, your uh, prints, and then you know they'd move on. So um, I think although many philosophers have had you know, perhaps good reason to be sceptical about certain forms of visuality, I think in terms of kind of popular cultures and you know and this is speaking globally as well there's some fascinating um uh, anthropological work done on on the way photography as a, as a technology spread um you know across uh, across the world uh, and was adapted in different ways in different places you know people have always wanted to make images of themselves you know perhaps to mark their sense of self their sense of family they send images to family members you know photographs and so on i mean it's it, you know and, and then of course with with digital media you know what you know selfies and so on um i think the paradox of course is that a lot of the these sorts of visual images have, have not been given very much respect by lots of academics um you know they're usually seen as just very um you know, kind of silly banal um trivial forms of imagery myself is have certainly been criticized for that um family photography does nothing more than re you know, replicate the patriarchal heteronormative family you know which is which is true but nonetheless it matters enormously to to, to many people you know, if you ask somebody what they're going to grab if their house is on fire that the answer you know eight times out of ten will be the family photo album um, so photography, I think, is you know remains really um, and has always been an extremely important um, uh, form of, of, of social expression, um, uh, and I think that's true, as I say, regardless of, of what certain philosophers have, have argued. Um, and clearly, you know, and there are different forms of, of visualities for sure. So I think some of those vernacular forms uh, are very different from the sorts of militarized visuals that, um, uh, that, that that some of that philosophy was basing its critique on. So in that sense, then, um, that's interesting, I think, because if we take, say, one example, Foucault's work around the panopticon and the notion of surveillance, which, of course, is incredibly useful, powerful idea and uh, opens, opened up examining the architecture of social space in an incredibly uh, useful way. And then I think perhaps, say, uh, say the work done at the... Um, Birmingham Centre for Cultural Studies, where there was more of a uh, 
part of what they were interested in then was precisely that idea of how people in their everyday lives used uh, materials, whether that was television or photography, to uh, create, as you say, their own kind of uh, social experiences and things. Um, so uh, you, you talk about, uh, in the book on family photography, you talk about uh, this as a social practice. Mm. What's, the, what, what's the key aspect of, of that idea then that this is well, family photographs as a as a social practice well, I suppose it's it's back well in a way it's one version of that notion of the politics of, of knowledge production I suppose like everyday knowledge is everyday understandings about who who we are uh, you know our, our sort of social context um, and I think the way to get at that for me you know, wasn't to you know, this is a methodological question I suppose as much as a theoretical one wasn't to um, you know take the photograph album as a sort of generic visual form and then and then bring a whole lot of sort of critical theory to bear on, on the you know the semiological contents and the although I can see there's a place for that for sure I mean I, you know I don't want to sort of police different sorts of methods um, but instead I was much more interested in uh, in the in the processes of 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 making photographs of, of what was done with them once they were made um, and this was partly generated by um, uh, uh, when I, just after um, uh, I had my first child, uh, I was sitting there, you know, as a new mother, completely exhausted from, you know, kind of, you know hardly any sleep, you know, um, uh, sitting there feeling compelled for some reason to make a very elaborate photograph album of the first few months of, of uh, you know, a baby's life, you know, endless photographs of this baby just lying there doing doing nothing. You know? um, and at a certain point, I was, you know, I looked over to my, my uh, partner and, and he was doing something, I think actually he was working on his PhD or something in the sort of corner of the room on a screen. And I was like, why, why am I doing, why do I feel it's necessary that I should be doing this? Um, and, and so that got me thinking about not just the content of the photographs, which was actually repetitive, you know, kind of deeply uninteresting, really, in any kind of aesthetic level, but actually clearly really mattered to, to me. Uh, and then, of course, as I started chatting with other new mums and realised that for, for mothers in particular, you know, we were all doing the same thing. We were all, you know, exhausted. We could all have been, you know, sleeping or having manicures or doing the ironing. And instead, we were making photographs, taking photographs with quite simple cameras and making making these albums. And then at that time, um, getting photographs printed, sending them off, particularly to our mothers, but also to the wider sort of family networks. And, and, that, and also, um, I was doing... Um, uh, I was living in Cambridge in, in the UK at the time, so there were a lot of other academic, you know, quite international, uh, and they, you know, sending photographs off to across the world of, of the you know, of our children, um, and so that really made me start to think about the importance of images, not just being in what they show, although that is important, but also in this incredibly rich set of things that are done with them. You know, how we make them, you know, putting them on mantelpiece displays, making albums, sticking them under fridge magnets, sending them on. You know, it's, it just seemed to me an incredibly rich set of social practices. Um, and quite, and what makes them social is that there were quite established ways of doing these things. So there were quite clear norms about who you sent photographs to and who you didn't. Um, what photographs you would display, or, you know, and where, what kinds, um, you know, what you would take photographs of. So there were very few photographs of, you know, kind of teen, um, you know, toddler tantrums or, you know, the, you know, sorts of happy photographs. And the, and the mums I spoke to were perfectly aware that they were, uh, this was very selective, it wasn't some naive. Um, but, but so social practice, you know, doing stuff, but also in, in quite almost sort of regulated ways, which might bring us back to, to Foucault in the ways of a sort of that sense of discipline, not, not in a kind of repressive way, but in a kind of productive way.
so there's certainly something there about um, there's both a reproduction as you say because mm. they're conforming to the existing formats and uh, uh, self-regulating in a certain kind of way um, some of those things um, it also re reminds me a bit of say back in the early 90s I, I uh, I studied my MA with Griselda Pollock and Fred Orton at, at Leeds on the social history of art. And of course, uh, Griselda's, I think, greatest work on modernity in the spaces of femininity, where she looked at the Impressionist paintings and how the the spaces within them were gendered. And uh, and of course, how, given the, the limits for what were essentially bourgeois women as, as, as artists in that time to move, they focused on the domestic so is this there's something about the idea of valorizing the domestic space and the domestic practices which is what you're kind of also uh, addressing i think absolutely yeah yeah so this is about taking um well in a sense the kind of geographies of home and family re really seriously and thinking about them as something that can clearly be oppressive for, for sure but but also are absolutely fundamental to so many people's sense of self and identity and i think Foucault seems to be a theme of this conversation, but I, I'm a big fan of Foucault too. Uh, and it really you know, irritates me when people think about that notion of discipline as simply being repressive. I mean, that's not what he was saying. It's also about how we come to be who we are and who we think we are um, you know, by drawing on these established practices or technologies or devices and, and, and making ourselves through them. Um, and I think that's, that's a very generative and potentially creative process as he went on in his later work to talk about the care of the self and how we sort of nurture certain sorts of identities through, through um, uh, these sorts of practices. That, you know, that, that's very much the angle that I've tried to take. There was a phrase you used, and <laughs> I'm not trying to find uh, quotes <laughs> to uh, um, you know, uh, make you struggle to remember, but there was a great line, you said, the doubled geometry of intimacy and severance. Do you remember that one at all? Um, not that specific <laughs> phrase, <laughs> I thought but that, again, uh, yes, yeah. I, I recall the, the uh, so I think that might have been in relation to, to women looking at the photographs of their children, perhaps, or... Um, yeah, I think the, 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 uh, the, the function of the photograph as, as something intimate, but also the notion of, I think, the, the sort of Bartian idea of the severance and the, you know, there's a, there's also a, a, a cutting process, isn't there, in within that, that sort of instantiates a certain kind of loss and things mm. like that. Mm. So I think there's a sort of economy there. Um, you then move, uh, in terms of your focus, onto, um, not that you've necessarily left the, any of this work behind as such but you in terms of publication then you 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 looked at images from the 2005 London bombings um, and I was very interested then you know what what was it that's quite a shift in a way which is of course nothing wrong with that but I'm just wondering what what it was about that coverage that 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 made you um, engage with with that kind of imagery which is a little bit different well, for me, um, it, it didn't feel like a shift, in fact, because what I was really interested in terms of the media coverage of the bombings was how important family photographs were to, to that coverage. So um, if you looked at the press coverage, and I stumbled across it just picking up a, 
um, thrown away copy of the evening London uh, London's evening newspaper when I was travelling, uh, you know, through the city not not long after those attacks. Um, uh, the, the, the newspapers and this actually started, in fact, um, uh, a few years earlier uh, after one of the uh, IRA bombs in in Northern Ireland. Um, the newspapers decided that to. Uh, record the the dead, the victims of those attacks. Um, the most appropriate way to do that was to find somewhere, and I never quite got to the bottom of how journalists located these. Uh, but they they would find family photographs of the victims and 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 print them as a as a marker of, of you know, the, the loss of, of those lives. And of course, they're incredibly powerful markers because while family photos are both very intimate, um, they also conform to quite clear rules about you know what we and so you can well perhaps it's a little less clear now sort of digital things have, have been happening um so extensively but certainly at that point you, you could kind of spot a family photograph from from 50 paces you know in terms of pose and content and uh, um and so often the, the papers would sort of crop the photos just to show the face but but it was very clear that um i think what they were trying to do was evoke a very powerful emotional response in the readers that that they would you know feel not quite as if it was their own family member that, that had had been killed, but um, but that perhaps that they you know th- there was an emotional pull there as as almost you know as if you know, what would it feel like if it was your family photo sitting in that paper, um, and I think that was part of a, of a wider discourse that really invited the sort of public to engage with those attacks at an emotional level and simply sort of focus on the horror and the trauma, which of course was absolutely true, uh, but without thinking about any of the you know, perhaps wider politics or um you know it was, it was just focusing on the horror and outrage of, of the loss of life and, and the family photos moving from you know the mantelpiece and the album into the mass media um were a very powerful means of, of achieving that um, so once again it's about images not having or having certain kinds of of affect themselves but how that works where where they are placed and where we see them and you know, it really makes a difference to, to the exact working out of, of their effects yeah, that's interesting. So the 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 starting point then, as you say, is the 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 victims, the, uh, the family photographs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that was something I, I looked at with Bloody Sunday in Northern Ireland, um, and you know what was very interesting there was, if you like, the journey of the image from the mantelpiece and the the table in the in the home. Um, and then the work that was done to f- reframe that because, you know, they'd have to enlarge some and reduce others and a lot of editing would go on. Um, and then they circulate outside that, you know, and they, they're, they're, they're used in so many different ways. And so family f- photographs were initially used and this would perhaps be the same in relation to the 2005, you know, images of the, uh, of the bombers themselves. They would use certain kinds of images uh, there um, and they as you say would want to cut and reframe those domestic associations as though somehow they didn't have homes and they didn't come from families um, uh, and used in a different kind of way so I think that process is a very very important one but yeah as you say the so that's the connection in the sort of the family use and the, mm. the again the domestic environment and that sense of journeys as well that's exactly the yeah how these how Im- images travel and then stuff starts to happen to them in different places yeah you mention uh, in that work then uh, Mbembe's notion of necropolitics could you just say something about um 
what why why that was useful. This uh, his sort of uh, advancement of again Foucault's biopolitics into something uh, that has a he comes from a post-colonial context, I suppose, and. Um, yeah, I think the two authors are, um, I found most useful for that paper were, were, were Mbembe for sure, uh, and also uh, Judith Butler, because I think what they're both interested in is, is, is the, I suppose you might call the, the politics of death, and in particular, whose, whose bodies or whose lives are considered to be worth grieving over. Um, and I think what was very clear in um, in the press coverage after those uh, um, attacks, and I imagine you know, after Enniskillen and other um, in, in the Irish context, indeed globally, which is Mbembe's point, um, some lives are, are, are implicitly deemed as more more valuable, more worthwhile than others because we sh we should be grieving about them more. Um, so in this case, it was the uh, you know the vic victims of of the attacks um, uh, and, and not not the perpetrators. Um, and it was interesting what you were saying about the um, the ways in which family photographs of the perpetrators were then circulated, but in rather different ways. Um, uh, what also struck me in the case of of the July two thousand and five uh, bombs in London, uh, it was the uh, role of the of the bombers' families as well. Um, because they also lost sons um, <laughs> um, and they appeared in very uneasy sorts of ways in some of the press coverage, um, very diff difficult ways. Um, uh, and there were very particular moments where very powerful claims were made on, on behalf of the victims by, by certain individuals. So, so it, was, it, was a very, it was a complicated scenario, but I think um, that, that notion of, of necropolitics and thinking about... Um, uh, how how death is even death, which you'd think would be the sort of ultimate universal experience. You know, it is is constructed and evaluated and uh, in very particular ways, particularly over processes of grieving and mourning and bereavement. Yeah, I mean, I think back. I mean, I, my early work, doctoral work, was around representations of, of people with AIDS and the British context of the media coverage. And uh, you know, there's always a hierarchy established in these things. You know, worthy victims, unworthy, those who are somehow deemed by association responsible or whatever. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a very important thing to kind of critique. I think mm. in terms of the media, um, because it, it uh, connects with a lot of powerful, I think, sort of uh, socially sort of repressive processes. Mm. Mm. You know, um, and it's the way that it facilitates amongst others that that kind of uh, those kind of reactions. And I think that's you know that's why it's important there. Mm. I think especially when the reaction is is an emotional one, yeah. you know, rather than a well, it's always emotional but mm. you know, discursive. Um, you know, it, it, it's very hard to, to sort of argue against mourning and grief and, and those sorts of visceral feelings, or um, not that you'd want to argue against them necessarily, but but perhaps to de try to sort of denaturalise them or in, in in some way. Um, so it's particularly powerful that, that that those photographs were being used in that way. I think. In recent days, in recent years, then you've moved on to um, as the as we've been uh, the social realm has been impacted by the digital, should we say, in different ways, um, and you you talk about this idea of post-human agency in the urban digital s space, which I think is very interesting kind of idea. Um, what is it about this formulation that uh, uh, is useful in, in the work that you want to do? 
Well, the idea of, of the post-human is a, it's a very complex and freighted one, and there's certainly lots of philosophers, you know, engaging and thinking, thinking it through. Um, I think for me, it's a useful term because it points to two different things that, that uh, I think are really crucial. Uh, one is the way in which um, to be human, I mean, these are quite deep, you know, so what, did, what is it to be human? Um, to be human is, is, is always achieved uh, with the uses of different kinds of technologies. And, and certainly many of the philosophers arguing that would, would, would say that's, that is a condition of, of, of the human and therefore it has always been the case. It's not particularly unique to the digital, for example. So, you, you know, you can think of stone axes or writing or, I don't know, murals or, you know, I mean, all sorts of, you know, um, so, uh, so it's by no means unique to the digital. But what it does make you um, make one consider then is as the technologies shift and change, so too maybe to forms of being human. Um, and I think that that makes us think around around the digital, uh, and, and uh, we need to unpack that term. I think you were implying that in your question. Uh, it's a very big, big term. But you know, if if we are now, um, well, let's say you know, the expectation is you know that most of us are on social media, that we'll be photographing ourselves, and that we'll be sharing what we do with friends. And you know, that, that's a very different sense of self from the kind of rather more contained person who would you know. Uh, have a very rich interior sense of self and you know that many cultural historians would argue the sort of the novel the book um the diary you know kind of, will kind of encourage so it's it's a it's a much more dispersed and, and and kind of networked sense of self and that's not caused by the technologies but it's enabled alongside with them so so there's a different kind of, of self along, alongside technological um uh, potentialities so that's one side of the post-human the other side um, is uh, a bunch of, of uh, feminist, queer, critical race scholars who would argue that the notion of the human, as it's been sort of historically constituted again by sort of philosophy, but um, perhaps also implicitly by things like geography, you know, um, has tended to assume only a very particular kind of human. So, you know, the, classically the kind of white, male, heterosexual, middle class property, you know. Um, and, and the sort of sense of what's normal or what's natural or, you know, the kind of things in which the, um, uh, the kind of characteristics of the human implicitly have, have, have assumed that, that kind of, of person. Uh, and that's excluded all sorts of other people. Um, I mean, so to take one example that geographers are quite fond of using, um, you know, the idea of, of the public sphere being occupied by people who can discourse about, you know, abstract, you know, um, you know, historically, that that was both, um, you know, literally in terms of the kind of places it was located, but also theoretically was was a position that only men were apparently able to occupy, white men, because only they had the capacity to actually have rational discussions. And women were stuck at home bringing up the kids, and you know, and you know, the other people were barely human. So other parts of the world. Um, so there's a whole bunch of post, another bunch of post-human philosophers who would argue that it's important, therefore, to expand the sense of the human beyond that that implicit white male. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, they're coming from feminists, queer, black studies, a whole range, you know, able-bodied, able studies, um, uh, and 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 just trying to think in different ways around expanding and differentiating, um, and making the the notion of the human much more capacious and differentiated. And that's partly about difference sort of just 
for its own sake because it exists, I suppose, but but also thinking more about the kind of hierarchies and and, and the assumptions um, about who you know whose whose knowledge gets gets um, authority and, and so on. So post-human is, is quite a rich term, but I think it's a very productive one to um, to be thinking through, and it takes us in those two directions around thinking both about technologies, but also about the differences that technologies can can enable, um, uh, you know, which could be about power, power hierarchies, but could also simply be about sort of creative diversity of, of different forms of use. You mentioned, um, it's, it's funny, you mentioned the, the stone axes. I was at, I had a class yesterday on Westworld, the TV series, <laughs> and I was discussing at length about stone axes in there because <laughs> I, uh, I was referring to the work of Bernard Stiegler and his ideas around techniques and things and trying. Uh, you mentioned the word assemblage, which again I think is very useful for that kind of idea that even from our point of view something as basic as a stone act is already part of a very complex social system which is what I was trying to communicate whilst at the same time talking about artificial intelligence so I think there's a very useful kind of um, what is it about Stiegler's work that you find uh, particularly useful in that context then because you've, you've, you've you talked at length about him in that article yeah so um, looking at Stiegler well actually partly it was the kind of tactical um, thing on my part because there's, there's quite a lot of digital geography emerging now so so a lot, as in a lot of geographers are bringing questions of kind of space place network connection to um, bear on thinking around um, kind of particular digital infrastructures um, they though have tended to um, take I think a um, you know, have quite a strong focus on the technology itself and not paid much attention to the questions of, of sort of subjectivity and, and the human which go alongside that for me at least um, and to do that they have done they have often used Stiegler themselves so I wanted to get in on that conversation I suppose and so I thought it might be worthwhile um, uh, you know, t tackling the, the, the theorists that they also have found very productive um, having said that um, Stiegler He's, he's, he's quite a sort of character. He's, he's an activist as well as a, as a philosopher. Um, and he has um, a sense of digital technologies, or well, he calls them a pharmacon, which, which is a, a term that, that uh, Derrida also uses. But his sense is that, te that technologies can be either really, really awful, but they can also be uh, a kind of means out of that awful situation. And his particular concern is um, the way in which social media now um, connects us constantly and, and there's an expectation that we are constantly as I say, sharing ourselves on social media but that we do so uh, at a speed uh, and with a lack of reflection that, that's actually profoundly um, uncreative and for him to be human is, is to be creative it's to be inventive it's to bring all these different forms of kind of cultural expression and meaning and so on and, 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 and pull them together and, and, and to create something new. Uh, and he's suggesting that, that technologies are running too fast to enable us to do that. And he, he, at one point, he, he actually suggests that what they're doing is, is turning us in, uh, into animals, which is perhaps not very fair on animals, but that sense that we're losing something about, about the human. Um, but he, within that argument, he also is one of the very few um, sort of you know, mega male philosophers of the digital which who starts to acknowledge that there might be differences within that because he suggests that um this speeded up speeding up is is something that younger people do much more than older people now i think we could debate that at great length and of course a lot of people would argue that actually a lot of social media use is incredibly creative and inventive and it, 
But nonetheless, in, embedded in his theoretical framework is this sense of there's a difference between diff the way different people use social media. And for me, that was a really useful hook for saying, well, OK, if there's that kind of difference, then can we sort of expand his approach and think about other kinds of differences, um, particularly around, you know, he suggests, di different forms of temporal engagement with social media, you know, slow, fast. I guess you know, we could expand that vocabulary into sort of frequent, infrequent, you know, long term, short term. Um, but also in, in terms, you know, as a geographer, particularly interested in, in, in the kind of spatial vocabulary as well. So, you know, people doing things that construct local networks or are they, you know, reaching out globally? Are they, you know, you know there are kind of spatial geometries, which are also really interesting to unpack. Again, as another way of thinking through differences, you know, perhaps as these different spatialities and temporalities are, are conducted using social media, then are different forms of, of the post-human emerging alongside and, and through those as well. Yes, his, I think his idea of the pharmacon uh, used for the sort of poison cure, uh, say from Derrida and the, to enable that deconstruction kind of process, I think is, is useful. Yes, he does, he does also, I think, talk about the herd mentality a little bit with, yes. with media. So, yeah, there's a little bit of kind of a bit rude at times about, yeah. you know... Um, I find him a little bit inflected by the sort of Frankfurt School, um, yeah. a, li a little bit. But, but but at least he's not saying, as I think some people are, well, it's all just terrible. You know, Google and Apple and Amazon, they're going to control the world and we all just have to, you know, sign off of Facebook and it will all be all right. Because, you know, that, I think that's extremely naive sort of knee-jerk reaction. At least he's saying, well, you know, let, let's stay with the technology. Um, you know, if, if it's a poison, it can also be a cure. And let, let's try and think about different ways to use it. Uh, and he has a kind of activist group, Ars, Ars Industrialis, um, which is trying to think that through in, in rather more practical terms. Um, and whatever you think of that, I, you know, I think it's quite, I mean, you know, again, rather like Foucault with, with his kind of activist uh, work around prisons. Um, you know, I, I think it's sort of admirable that he's taking that in, into a, a sort of practical consequence as well and thinking about different sorts of practices again and how we might, might become differently through doing things differently. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential there. Certainly the geomedia group here, we later next early next year we intend to kind of interrogate his work and get some speakers in and things to really see how we can use that i think that's useful okay um so my final question um uh, la last year i um uh, edited a journal on location in television serial drama with Anne-Marie Varda i think you know from always so um I was just wondering, and my work at the moment is around television series, as I was, was kind of mentioned. So I'm interested then, do you have a, a TV series that has a, a strong sense of location that, that gets your attention? You know, the, very much the Nordic Noir idea is, is the use of place. And, and one of the key things within television series uh, has been the as a Welsh TV series that uh, uses the landscape in particular ways. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Uh, is there any particular TV series that? Yeah, I'm just trying to um, trying to think. I mean, it, interesting. I've, I've moved house a few months ago, and I haven't bothered getting a television aerial fitted because I subscribe to Netflix, the BBC. You, you can watch everything on on iPlayer, you know, on the, on their um, streaming service. So, um, so in terms of serial, yeah, I mean, I uh, well. 
so one that immediately springs to mind was a box set was 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 True Detective, but I, I think there the music was really important as well as the um, as well as that kind of overheated American South sort of. Um, that was very powerful, but actually, I mean, the one that most springs to mind because I have—I um, don't know if it's a weakness or a <laughs> it's for, for sort of fantasy sci-fi. What would actually be Game of Thrones, um, where the, the places are—I mean, well, the whole that those that opening—I don't know what you call it—the the, the, um, like the opening bit where the theme and the, the tune and the credits and yeah. and they have that that kind of aerial that digitally produced sort of aerial. You know, you, we go here and then Mechanical, we go back to Westeros uh, and we go yeah. to yeah the north and the. Um, I think the ways in which digital have been used really powerfully there to to actually enable the read the viewer to navigate through what's an extraordinarily complicated story by by placing the different dynasties and characters in these very particular landscapes. Um, that that for me is really uh, really fascinating actually um yeah um although i must admit i'd usually watch box sets to escape thoughts of geography and as, as a break from work rather i think, than, I think that should uh, be your next paper now the yeah, opening yeah. credits the geography of, is of okay. yes well thank you very much Gillian, um and uh, for, for covering all of that and uh, thank you very much yeah, thank you it's been a pleasure